Welcome back. Fairs Come Follow Me, Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach. I am so glad you're with us today. Before we get started, I wanted to draw your attention to something you might not be aware of. Um, if you're watching these episodes on YouTube, or if you're just listening to the audio, you might be unaware we are posting these on the Fair Latter-day Saints website. Why would you want to go there in, instead of here? It's a great question. <laughs> um, here, Here's the reason why. It, so formal theology is divided into about 10 sections, and there's different aspects when you study like systematic, systematic theology. So you study salvation, you study the spirit, you study um, anthropology, like what's the nature of man, um, all of these different things. And how we have organized these videos is taken roughly those 10 areas of theology. There's 50 weeks in a year divided as close as possible. It's not quite perfect divided the videos up so that there's going to be about five under each heading. And we have enough videos recorded now and released that you can start to see on the FAIR website how they are organized into their various categories. The reason I mention that is um, several times in the comments, especially on YouTube, hi, YouTube commenters, thank you, love you, um, Several times in the in the comments, someone has said, oh, I wish you would have addressed this aspect of, of this theological concept, right? Or, or, what, or what about that? Um, it, every, every concept is going to, it's designed so that we will pick it back up as it comes back up in the text. I love when you point things out to me, it really um, helps me focus down some of this. But if you want to know, like, gosh, I really wanted to know about this aspect of salvation. Fair Latter-day Saints website is where you want to go. So today we are talking about prayer. As you know, we're going through the Come Follow Me readings and addressing common questions that evangelicals would ask about our faith as we go along. And like I always say, our purpose here is not to fuel debate, but to help you understand your evangelical friends or family members, where they're coming from, so that you can have better conversations with them and hopefully be able to offer them a bit of the gifts of our faith that might bless them. So today's verse comes from Luke chapter 11 in verse 1 and 2. And it came to pass that as, they, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord teach us to pray, as John has also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when you pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven. And he goes on to give what we now know as the Lord's Prayer. So if you've ever visited an evangelical church or, or spent very much time around evangelical people, you will notice um, it's several differences in how they pray compared to how we pray. A couple of videos back, I talked at length about this as it applies to Sundays, what their Sunday worship looks like, what their like services look like. So if you want more on that, go, go a couple of videos back to the, the Sabbath day video. Um, but one of the things you might have noticed is that they address prayers directly to Jesus, not, um, not to the exclusion of addressing prayers to God the Father, that's it's not like that's disallowed. 
but they very frequently are addressing um, prayers to, to Jesus in their services and in their private prayer. So before we talk about why Latter-day Saints pray differently, we need to work to understand why evangelicals are praying directly to Jesus and, and what it means to them that they're doing so. Um, so evangelicals on, on this topic, like on most topics, they would say that they start with the Bible. And there are three primary examples from the New Testament that they pull here. There's one of there's one other one um, that we'll get to. I'm going to kind of set that one aside for a minute and, and you'll see why. The first three all happen in the book of Acts. The examples are Stephen, Saul, and Ananias, or Ananias. Um, their stories are found in Acts chapter seven through nine. The other instance is Revelation 22, 20, and we'll deal with it a little bit differently. So we'll save that one for last. So these are some of the examples um, that that everybody, yeah, I'm going to say everybody, I don't know that I 100% mean it. Most people in the evangelical world would agree on. There are other examples of praying directly to Jesus that they would quibble over. Is this really a prayer? Is it really to Jesus? These are sort of the three solid examples. Um, and evangelicals look to these examples to say, see, these people were praying directly to Jesus and it worked out for them. Therefore, we should pray directly to Jesus. So let's let's examine what they're saying, why they're saying it, and, and why we think a little bit differently. So the first example is Stephen. So um Acts chapter six is where we first see Stephen. He's a man full of the spirit. He's working to spread the gospel. This is shortly after the resurrection, the very early chapters of the book of Acts. Um, the ruling council is called the Sanhedrin, and that's a, a council for Jews during this era. If you remember, the Jews are under Roman occupation. So... Rome enforces the laws, but they don't really care about the religious laws. So the Sanhedrin is there to um, rule on religious, it's religious court, basically. The, the Roman government doesn't concern itself with any of that. So the members of the Sanhedrin, the people in charge of enforcing Jewish law, they're upset with Stephen. They do not like what he is saying because essentially he's saying um, Jesus is God. Moses points to Jesus as God, therefore we should understand Jesus as God. And what they do is they make up some false charges against Stephen and they haul him into court. And the charge is that he has spoken blasphemy against Moses and against God. And that's a big crime in that court in that day. So Stephen is asked if the charges are true and he, he gives this passionate very, very long speech um, explaining how Moses points directly to Jesus and that what he is teaching is consistent with what Moses would have taught. Well, the Sanhedrin is furious. Um, the text says they gnash their teeth at him, um, which is a phrase I think we should bring back into, into modern usage. Sometimes I would like to gnash my teeth at something. <laughs> So they drag Stephen outside the city limits and they start stoning him, throwing large rocks at his head, essentially. Stephen looks up into heaven. He sees Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ in a vision. And he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Now, Stephen's prayer is really short, and it is directed directed at Jesus, despite the fact that Heavenly Father is there too. In theory, he could have addressed his prayer to Heavenly Father. Why doesn't he? So evangelicals take this to reinforce the idea that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. They're not taking this passage to say you shouldn't pray to to God the Father. They wouldn't say that. But they do take it to reinforce the idea that no longer do people need a priest to help them approach God, or they don't need to make an animal sacrifice in order to approach God. Praying in Jesus's name is now the key to communication with God. So for them, praying in Jesus's name includes praying directly to him. And that's what they see Stephen doing here. He's taking the option to pray directly to Jesus, even though God the Father is standing right there with him. Um, Bruce R. McConkie addressed this in his... um, doctrinal new testament commentary on this passage he basically says that the prayer was consistent with what stephen just preached right he's preaching moses points us to jesus jesus is god and and this is what he's being stoned for he's been killed for saying this calling jesus god so jesus is there appears to him showing approval for stephen's actions reveals himself to Stephen as as he is dying. And so Stephen addresses him directly because that's how he got in this situation in the first place. This is not um, a prescriptive passage, is what McConkie goes on to say. This is not, um, here is how you should pray. It's explaining, here is why Stephen is praying this way, which is the exception to the rule, right? And and evangelicals would certainly disagree with that. They would say, no, Stephen, Jesus, direct prayer to Jesus. Kind of, they wouldn't necessarily look at the the wider context of that. We see it again in the same example, essentially, with Saul. They they make basically the same argument here. Um, Acts chapter 9, this is Saul, who later becomes Paul. He's traveling around, he's persecuting Christians um, for many of the same reason that the Sanhedrin was persecuting Stephen. He and his companions are walking on the road to Damascus. Saul sees a great light. He's thrown to the ground. He hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul responds directly to the voice. I mean, I would too, right? Wouldn't you? (laughs) And, and he says, who are you? And, and the voice tells him that it's Jesus speaking and gives him some further direction on what to do. So Paul's, who are you? The evangelicals would say that's a prayer directed directly at Jesus. This is a, a prototype, a precedent for praying to Jesus. It, is it? Well, t- I mean, technically, yes, Paul speaks to Jesus. Speaking to the divine is prayer. So yes, Paul is praying to Jesus and and it worked out for him, but he didn't even know who he was speaking to. He knew it was a voice and asked who it was, right? So this, if this is an example that we should pray to Jesus, it's an odd one because Paul didn't know that that's, or Saul didn't know that's actually what he was doing. The experience is a bit of an outlier. It's not a normal occurrence to be traveling down the road 
blinded by a light and have Jesus speak to you directly. But I suppose if you have this experience, answering directly is probably the right thing to do. But that's never happened to me. I imagine it has never happened to you. This is an extraordinary circumstance, not um, the bread and butter of what a prayer life is like. So the last example um, that we have is Ananias. So he is a disciple. He's living in Damascus. Um, the, Paul or Saul was on his way to Damascus. Ananias is a, a faithful man who is living there. Saul has been blinded by the light that he saw when Jesus spoke to him. And Ananias is the one who is tasked with restoring Saul's sight. Now, Saul, the text tells us he had been breathing out murderous threats against the believers. So Ananias is understandably a little, a little suspicious of what's going on here. And he's, he's a little worried. Ananias has a vision of Jesus asking him to go to a certain house where Saul will be and restore his sight. His first response, he recognizes it as Jesus. His first response is, yes, Lord. I think we as Latter-day Saints would agree if Jesus appears to you and asks you to do something, the correct response is, yes, Lord. He he go he the, that goes on. They they have a little bit of an exchange there. None of these examples, Stephen or Saul or Ananias, are typical. They happen very soon after the resurrection. They all happen within a short amount of time of each other. This is Acts, like roughly seven through nine. Um, they all involve Jesus appearing to someone, speaking to them, and the person speaks back. Evangelicals are taking this as a prototype of prayer. Um, even a prototype of a very powerful prayer. Um, important things happen after these prayers are said, right? Like this is the stuff of early Acts is like the, the most exciting stuff in the book of Acts. And and evangelicals see this as this is a good way to pray. It produced fantastic results. And we might be more inclined to say these are exceptions to the rule and not the standard practice. So I told you there's another example of this outside of the book of Acts, and it, it comes in Revelation 22.20. And it, it's actually, I actually, in terms of the arguments, this is actually a better argument than the three um, prototype examples that they use. Here, here's how it goes. Um Evangelicals read Revelation 22 as being um, very significant because it's the last chapter of the Bible. And the verse we're going to look at is verse 20, which is the second to last verse in the Bible. So it carries a lot of weight for them. The reality is Revelation was probably not the last book that was written in terms of the timeline. It was probably it written significantly before some of the other books there's a lot of debate on the on the dating and, and the order of all of this second peter is probably the latest one but if you want to observe a great debate throw that question out to a group of theologians and they'll go for blood with each other because this is a hot topic um so even though revelation is not the last book written it is the last book in order and so they put 
a kind of importance on that. The reason why Revelation is the last book is because it it is an outlier, right? We get the Gospels, which is the story of Jesus. We get Acts, which is the history of the early church. We get a bunch of letters from Paul. We get a bunch of other letters to churches from various people. And then we get Revelation. Where else is it supposed to fit? It's apocryphal or it's um, apocalyptic. Um, it doesn't really fit anywhere else. So, so it goes at the end. But evangelicals kind of give it a more important place because of its spot. So the verse in question goes like this. Um, he who testifies of these things says, yes, I am coming. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. So this is all about Jesus's second coming. And the he who testifies to these things is Jesus himself. And the phrase, amen, come Lord Jesus, is seen like as a prayer in agreement that he does so. It's a, it's a yes, Jesus, please, please come for your second coming quickly. That phrase, come Lord Jesus, has a history. It's actually considered the second oldest formulation of prayer, second only to the Lord's prayer. And part of how we know this is that Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 16.22, but he quotes it in Aramaic. The, the word there is Maranatha. Maybe you've heard that word. Paul is writing to the people who live in Corinth. It, they're Greek speakers. They're not Aramaic speakers. So why is Paul using an Aramaic word to these people who don't speak that language? And the idea seems to be that this was a common enough prayer that they would recognize that word and know what it meant, that somehow the early Christians were using this, come Lord Jesus, as a, as a form of prayer. Um, the phrase also appears in another book from that era called the Didache. Um, the Didache did not make it into the New Testament for some really good reasons. It's um, It's kind of considered like a early church handbook. Um, it teaches how the church should be run in some practical terms. Um, like it takes up the issue of what type of water should people be baptized in? Is standing water okay? Should it be running water like a river? Like it's, it's dealing with very, very practical matters. And, and so it's a great book for its time. It's not a binding book for all of time. That's why it doesn't make it into the New Testament. But the phrase, come Lord Jesus or, or Maranatha, is suggested in that book as an acceptable way to end a prayer. Very much like we would say, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Early, early Christians could say, come Lord Jesus, amen. But they meant the same thing. When we say, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And when they were saying, come Lord Jesus, amen. It, what we mean is, is the identical thing. We are, we are seeking to obey that command and they were too. So the phrase, come Lord Jesus, goes on to have a really important place in Christian worship for centuries. It's, um, it's mentioned in the middle ages before the middle ages like it 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 becomes a thing like it's a it's a formalized prayer come lord jesus and so evangelicals like to reach into to revelation that second to the last verse kind of grab it out and say 
like this is this is a prayer this is an example of praying to jesus and it's got this important place second to last verse in the whole bible therefore this is okay it here's the difficulty evangelicals are not super interested in ancient church history they're they're just not they don't understand the history and the development of how that phrase was used and that it was being used in the same way that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen, is used. If you remember from a few videos ago, we talked about the entire evangelical movement is really about 70 years old. And they don't care all that much about history before that, except for they jump all the way back in time to, to New Testament times. They see come Lord Jesus in the New Testament. They they pull it out of its context, of its historical meaning, and say, oh, this is a prayer to Jesus. But they miss the fact that it was being used as in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. There, what I want you to know is like their desire and motivation here is not bad. They want to get as closely connected to Jesus Christ as they can, and that is admirable but in doing so they miss the fact that jesus himself asked us to pray in the name of the father so one of the weaknesses in the evangelical movement and they would say this themselves this isn't an external criticism um because they hold a view that the bible is an errant meaning um perfect and, and different people mean different things about what perfect actually means but they would use the word inerrant, they take these things more literally than sometimes context or history actually allow. So they take come Lord Jesus as a literal prayer, not a formation of praying in Jesus's name. Their hearts are in the right place, but they get a little bit lost in the weeds here because they're trying to obey the Bible a little bit more than they're trying to obey Jesus. They would hear that as splitting hairs and that that's a nonsensical argument. But I think Latter-day Saints, you you know what I mean when I'm saying that. And, and I say it kindly. I, I think they have good motives for doing what they're doing. They themselves recognize the problem with inerrancy and how they pull verses out of their context in the Bible. And they might not say the resulting practice has some issues, but I think we can see them. W one other issue I want to touch on briefly here, it's going to come up again, um, but it is repetition in prayer. Um, now, for the most part, we would be on the same page as evangelicals about um, scripted prayers that are said over and over that are repeated that are like pre-written prayers. Like us, they would say that scripted prayers should be avoided because it's too easy to pray them without your heart in it. I, however, there is a, there's a sizable minority. It is a minority, but but it's a pretty big minority in the evangelical world who who do experiment with scripted prayers, and they have a really interesting motivation for doing so that I want to point out to you. So, you might not know this: scripted prayers are not new prayers. It's not like someone wrote this the week before to, to read off in a service. They're very old prayers that have been written down and repeated through the centuries. 
You might have heard of the Book of Common Prayer. That's the Anglican prayer book that contains um, prayers assigned to say every single Sunday. You can look up any Sunday. It, it, they go on a three-year rotation. So look up any Sunday and say, oh, this is the, the prayer for that day. The, the collect for that day is what they would call it. Um, evangelicals who are interested in this kind of thing have a real soft spot for Anglicans. So the Book of Common Prayer is usually kind of their go-to source for scripted prayers. And these prayers have been prayed by Christians for centuries and centuries. There is a decent size, it's a minority, decent sized minority in the evangelical culture that longs for learning about some ancient ways. Most of the evangelical world is about your rock band on stage and flashing lights and shiny, shiny objects. But there is an undertow that, that resists that a little bit and says, we've kind of lost something. Um, churches like that sometimes get, they get called happy clappy churches. That's not an insult. It's a description, um, a, a kind hearted description, the happy clappy churches Evangelicals who are interested in this would say they're missing some ancient things. Using very old scripted prayers is one attempt that they are making to learn about ancient practices. They know that something has been lost and they long to have it restored. I, I will push my luck here. <laughs> You can disagree with me, but I will push my luck here and say, this is evident that they long for a restoration. They know that things have been lost. They long to see those things restored. What they long for in theory and in kind of vagueness, we have in specificity. Just something to think about. As you're talking with your evangelical friends, there are a good number of them who are interested in restoring ancient ways that things have been lost and they would like to see them restored. That is a fascinating conversation for you to have. Um, I hope you'll join us next time. I love getting your questions in email. You can find me, jroach, at fairlatterdaysaints.org. If you leave a question in the YouTube comments, I... I'm, I might see it. I probably will see it. I try to see them, but email is the best. Love to get your questions and comments and I will see you next time.